Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambender here. I could not be more excited to share this Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. What is Cardio Nerds Rounds, you ask? Well, Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we get to learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from the University of Maryland and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds Rounds are generally held once monthly during the noon hour Eastern Standard Time, but then are released via podcast like in this episode for your asynchronous medical education pleasure. You can find out more about Cardio Nerds Rounds and register for upcoming events on cardionerdsrounds.com forward slash rounds. This episode features a delightful discussion with leading expert and master cardionerd recipient, Dr. Martha Galati, as she walks us through an approach to complicated cases in cardiovascular prevention. We are so appreciative to Dr. Galati for her participation in this Cardionerd's Rounds episode, but also we are so grateful for her steadfast support of our mission to democratize cardiovascular education by her mentorship, sponsorship, networking, and promotion. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeVest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Ivan Chivari for their top-notch production skills that make Cardiac Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio nerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever, wherever you all are listening from, we want to welcome you to Cardio Nerds Rounds. My name is Karin Desai. I'm a cardiology fellow at the University of Maryland, and along with Natalie Stokes, chief fellow at the University of Pittsburgh, we are your co-chairs for Cardio Nerds Rounds. We want to thank Seoul for their sponsorship of this event, and along with that, we want to thank Katie Burlacher, program director at UPMC, for her guidance for the series. So our goal with Cardio Nerds Rounds is to bring the community together, the cardiovascular training community especially, to learn the latest evidence and guidelines, the real-life challenging cases. Now, these are all cases we see in our clinics, and who better to learn how to approach these cases than from world experts directly? That is why we are so thrilled to have Dr. Martha Galati here with us. Dr. Gulati is the editor-in-chief of the American College of Cardiology, CardioSmart, and the president-elect of the American Society of Preventative Cardiology. She was professor of medicine and the inaugural chief of cardiology at the University of Arizona and chair in women's cardiovascular health at the Ohio State University. She's additionally the author of the bestseller, Saving Women's Heart. Dr. Gulati is passionate about the study of women and the prevention of heart disease and has won countless awards and distinctions for her commitment to these fields. There is so much more to say about Dr. Gulati, but we need to get to round. So Dr. Gulati, wonderful to have you here today. We have a busy service, so we should probably get started. Our first patient is Miss D. Miss D is a 55-year-old South Asian female. She's coming to prevention clinic for evaluation of an elevated LDLC. Her past history includes hyperlipidemia, hypertension, 
class one obesity and preeclampsia with her second child. She's a G3P3, meaning she's had three pregnancies and delivered three children. She's a never smoker. Only medication she's taking at this time is hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, and a multivitamin. Two years ago, she was told to get high cholesterol and she would need medication. At the time, she started exercising more regularly and she completely cut sweets out of her diet. Kudos to her. She states she has white rice with two meals daily. And she goes for a 30 to 45 minute walk every evening, about six days a week with her friends, the auntie crew. So before clinic, she actually had a great lab workup set. It shows her total cholesterol is 320. Her LDLC is 180. Her lipoprotein, little a, is 90. Hemoglobin A1C is 5.2. This makes her 10-year ASCVD risk by the pooled cohort equation is estimated at 5.4%. She also had a coronary artery calcium score done through the PCP which comes back at 110. Miss D strongly prefers not to be on a statin medication, but she is willing to have a discussion, and that's what she's doing here today. So, Dr. Gulati, why don't you talk a little bit about what you would recommend? Well, I think this is a really great question, but, you know, this is a very big problem in the South Asian population for both men and women, and it's probably interesting for all of us to recognize that Indians or South Asians account for about 25% of the world population, but actually account for 60% of the world's heart disease burden. And that is true, both people living within the Indian subcontinent, but also people who are part of the diaspora that are living all over the world. We know that heart disease occurs earlier in South Asians, and in fact, for South Asian men, 50% of the heart attacks actually occur under the age of 50, and 25% of them occur under the age of 40. And at every age group, their mortality is greater than any other race. For women, it's greatest when it's 45 years and above. So this risk of heart disease is huge, and getting them screened for heart disease is the first step towards prevention. We also know that South Asian men and women are more likely to die after a heart attack. And we also know that none of the risk scores we have actually work for South Asians, particularly the ones that we use in the U.S., but even the score that's used in Europe. In the U.K., they have something called the Q-risk that they've actually refined for South Asians, but is not used as frequently but maybe better because they have a score that they've created for South Asians. So we've identified South Asian ancestry or ethnicity as a risk-enhancing factor. As of 2019, we listed a number of risk enhancers. She has some others that we'll get to, but the one that obviously right off is that if they're South Asian, that at least is a risk enhancer. Now, when you do use the ASCBD risk score, as was done in this particular patient, you know, you get to choose, obviously, gender, male or female, and then race. It's The choices are white, African-American, or other. Just so that everyone knows, and this was clarified by the people that created the pool cohort equation, they very clearly said in the text of their recommendations that when you default to other, it goes back to Caucasian or back to white. And so there's nothing unique here. 
accept that they're just saying they could have given us two races because we don't have good risk estimations for people of other races. And even though we can talk about how well validated the pool cohort equation has been, both internally and externally, it has not been validated in South Asians. And in general, it will underestimate the risk in South Asians. So just know that when you get your ASCVD risk estimate, both the 10-year and lifetime, if you're dealing with a South Asian or actually any other race population other than uh, Caucasian or African-American, you need to do a little bit more. That's only step one. We know from the United States in terms of race that there's differences, even within the South Asian population. So you really want to know a little bit more about the patients because South Asian, quite honestly, is huge and diverse in and of itself. And there's a lot of data showing that Indians are different than Pakistanis, which are different than Bangladeshis, who are different than Sri Lankans, and who are different from people from Nepal. So we have less data on the latter two, so I'm going to concentrate on these three groups. But from the U.S., we know there's differences in risk factors. Smoking is much higher in Pakistani and Bangladeshis. Exercise is much lower in Bangladeshis in general. Diabetes tends to be highest in Bangladeshi descent. Hypertension may be pretty relatively equal. Obesity, specifically for women, is higher in Pakistani women than Indian or Bangladeshi. Now you'll have that information in front of you based on the person, but just know that all South Asians aren't the same. And that was one cohort, but this is from the Masala study, which is the largest cohort in the United States. It's predominantly Indian. You can see that really it's almost more than 90% Indian and then the remainder are Pakistani enrolled in this Masala population study. But again, there they saw differences in enrollment of women, but differences in level of exercise, tobacco use, diabetes, and differences in cholesterol and specifically in terms of obesity. Again, just the point that not all South Asians are the same. And it may be multiple things. It can be social determinants of health. We certainly know from some of the data from the UK that there's differences specifically, at least back at that time, the immigrant population coming from Bangladesh seemed to have less education and more social determinants of health in terms of adverse social determinants of health. But there's also cultural differences in terms of diet, physical activity, tobacco use. There may be differences also genetically. We just don't know them at this time. But I think this is where it requires all of us to have some cultural competence as our world is becoming more diverse, regardless of where you practice. Even really any country, you may end up taking care of a South Asian person. And the first step is asking, where are they from? Where did they come from? Don't make assumptions just by looking at someone as we shouldn't do for anyone and ask where they're from. Ask about the traditional risk factors and try to dive in a little bit more. But if we can understand the people, our patients better, it can help us really inform effective preventive interventions because even knowing those differences may help you connect with them in terms of what their diet differences and in terms of you making recommendations. 
Now, this woman, of course, is very interesting because she's a, a risk enhancer. We identified certainly with South Asian, but she also told us that she had had preeclampsia. So that put her at a greater risk. I would encourage you to check for metabolic syndrome. I'm presuming this woman has some of that. I know she had elevated triglycerides. Her BMI we got, but I always measure waist circumference. I don't actually care so much about the BMI, but I do measure for central obesity. And anyone who's worked with me knows I carry around a measuring tape and I measure everyone's waist. And for South Asians, we actually have a different threshold for waist circumference. They emphasize this, that you should take it by ethnically appropriate cut points because we know South Asians, sometimes the BMI will actually be normal, but central obesity is big issue. And by different thresholds, you may find that somebody is carrying their weight differently. I always say if your abdomen enters the room before the rest of you, you probably have metabolic syndrome. So the sort of apple-shaped versus pear-shaped person, if you will. And for women, I think that's something you can use. She also has an elevated LP little a, so we can add that also to our list of things. And then you want to make sure you ask about all the other things that might help you. But multiple risk enhancers in this woman. The issue behind coronary calcium, specifically looking at women with preeclampsia versus no preeclampsia who all underwent coronary calcium scores, and they saw that specifically the women that were age 40 to 45 with prior preeclampsia compared to those with no preeclampsia, there's almost a fourfold greater risk of coronary calcification. So there's some premature atherosclerosis going on them, at least in this age group. Maybe not so much as we get older, it's probably relatively equal. But if you encounter these patients that have preeclampsia, regardless of race, you should think about getting a coronary calcium score maybe at least five years earlier than you would in somebody who doesn't have preeclampsia because they may have a heightened coronary calcium score. And particularly for South Asians, why it might matter. This is a paper that I worked on with some of my colleagues. Uh, actually, one of them was a fellow at Hopkins, Dr. Mihas, and Dr. Mikos, who's an attending there. We looked at the odds of preeclampsia. It's well clear that Black Americans are much more likely to have preeclampsia, and in fact, much less common in the South Asian, but really Asian or Pacific Islanders, it occurs less often. But when it does occur, actually the risk for cardiovascular disease is much higher for the Asian and Pacific Islanders to have cardiovascular complications. So again, it's just important to take this history in everyone, but to know that there's actually a heightened risk perhaps in this group. So for this woman being South Asian, again, just a, a marker that there's a higher risk for this population. Now, I saw that one of the options was about aspirin and her coronary calcium score, I believe, I hope I got it right. I think it was 110. Do you start aspirin? It's a risk and benefit weighing game a little bit. You don't want them to have a bleed, but you also want to lower their risk for future cardiovascular events. And we know that with a higher coronary calcium score, the ASCBD risk is actually higher than the risk of bleeding based on a recent paper from the Dallas Heart Study. 
If you have multiple risk enhancers, though, and a coronary calcium that's above 100 and no bleeding risk, I would highly recommend the use of aspirin. Not many of you seem to want to use aspirin. This is a common question in my clinic by my fellows would always ask me, do we start them on aspirin? If we have a coronary calcium score above zero and no bleeding risk, I encourage my patient, of course, multiple risk enhancers push my hand a little bit. It's always about shared decision making, though. So we want to make sure our patient is comfortable with it before we do it and, and talk about it with this patient. She thinks she's just coming to talk about statins. So sometimes throwing two medications at her might be even shocking at that point. So you may want to say, well, let's start one thing versus another. We know from the MESA work that when you have a coronary calcium score that is above 100, the number you need to treat to reduce just one cardiovascular event in the next five years is 140 versus the number needed to harm in the next five years from a bleed or something else is much higher, 518. So I think I can make the case to my patients, you're more likely to benefit from taking aspirin than not taking aspirin. And these are just from that paper that was published last year that really is a nice way to talk about cardiovascular events versus the risk of bleeding and your cardiovascular events in the next five years based on the risk score. Now for her, of course, her risk score does come out as 5% with risk enhancers and the coronary calcium score. You might want to upgrade her risk, but even if you leave it here, you'd see that there's a benefit rather than the harm. Dr. Gladi, thank you. There are so many pearls from this case. Just to quickly reiterate, we know that our risk calculators are imperfect and we need to consider these risk enhancing factors I think what you noted about the amount of diversity within the South Asian population is really important for providers to make note of. I love the pearl about measuring for central obesity. I personally don't do that and think it's an easy enough thing to do and can definitely add a lot to the risk-benefit discussion for treatment. Your insight into how to use coronary artery calcium and lipoprotein A for patients with risk-enhancing factors is wonderful, so thank you for your guidance on that. And the Coronary artery calcium score with low bleeding risk, the recommendation to consider aspirin, I agree that's something we are oftentimes hesitant to do, but that's a good discussion to have with our patients. And so thank you for drawing attention to that. I think, though, we have to move on to the next case because we have more, more in our round. Yeah, Dr. Galati, that was fantastic. I, I was just texting with Natalie in the middle. You know, my mom measures my central obesity just randomly. So I'm kind of used to it at this point. But because this is a national cardio nurse rounds, we are now going to go out to Houston, where Nadja Khan, one of the third year medical residents at Houston Methodist, but also one of our cardio nurse academy fellows is going to present our next case. And Najat is an absolute star resident, but also a star researcher in preventive cardiology. So Najat, you want to take it away? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate that. So our next case will be with Miss A. She is a 58-year-old woman who presents to establish care at a general cardiology clinic for the management of shortness of breath. Her history includes hypertension, cutaneous lupus, and ongoing tobacco use, about three to five cigarettes a day. Her BMI is 27. One year prior, she started having nausea intermittently, and it was specifically more common with exertion or with stress. She saw her primary care provider, who initially recommended an EKG and GI evaluation. An endoscopy was undertaken, but there was no evidence of pathology. 
So on the EKG, we see their sinus rhythm with right axis, narrow QRS, and some nonspecific T-wave changes in ferrolaterally. They are not necessarily striking, but they're not benign. So initially, she was told she likely had GERD, and she was started on a PPI and felt some mild improvement in her symptoms. Six months ago, however, her new shortness of breath she had on her in-home bike after 10 minutes, when previously she could tolerate about 30 minutes on that bike. About four months ago, she had a left knee meniscal tear and wasn't exercising as much, but she continued to have shortness of breath with stress. So she saw a cardiologist who referred her for a PET stress, which showed a small area of reversible ischemia in the basal to mid-inferior wall and borderline decreased coronary flow reserve, 1.8 in all three epicardial territories, whereas normal is greater than two. So her symptoms were ongoing, and thus she was referred for a diagnostic left heart cath, and that showed mild non-obstructive coronary disease, 40% in the mid-RCA and 20 to 30% in the distal LAD. She was told to start aspirin and that her symptoms are largely non-cardiac and to just follow up with a general cardiologist. No functional testing was done. Among her other medications, she's on hydroxychloroquine, amlodipine 10, a multivitamin. In the office, her blood pressure was 135 over 83 and her heart rate was 87. She resumed exercising, but she was still having that shortness of breath when she was exercising with some intermittent nausea. Her lipid panel showed a total cholesterol of 221, an HDL of 50, an LDLC of 133, and her triglycerides were 90. Her 10-year ASCVT risk was 4.6%, with an A1C of 5.0. Her symptoms have been concerning her for a heart attack, and she wants to take future measures to prevent any cardiovascular events. She's asking you for your advice. So, all right, Dr. Galati. Well, this is a great case, and thank you for choosing to present this case because I know we're doing a lot of disparate topics, but chest pain, of course, is something I'm dealing with. I'm the chair of the chest pain guidelines that will be coming out next month. So initially, we thought that this whole conversation was going to be about chest pain, and we decided to wait, and maybe we can do that another time. But when you Google chest pain, you will get all these pictures. What's the commonality? Of course, they're experiencing chest pain, but these are all men. Every single image shows a man and, and the different symptoms are well depicted. But when we keep continuing to show these symptoms as male predominant diseases, we forget that they can occur in women. And then we have women like this patient who present very clearly, to me at least, with symptoms that are occurring that could be angina. And for quite some time, it seems ignored. Now, I will give them credit. They did do an EKG, yet the EKG seemed to be not really responded to. You might have noticed, I thought it had a right bundle branch block or an incomplete right bundle, I, I should say. And I would not accept that EKG being normal. I would have wanted to do more cardiac investigations as a result of that abnormality. But there was many opportunities. She continued to have symptoms and had no, no real response, continued to say, I'm not exercising. Cut your exercise down by two-thirds is pretty dramatic reduction of activity. And again, nobody thought that there was something more related to her heart until finally she got to the cardiologist and got some imaging. 
I will say this is very common. I know that she had nausea, but she also had shortness of breath, which is a very common symptom. What do we know about chest pain or, or chest discomfort and symptoms? Well, the Virgo study, specifically for women under the age of 55, and everyone in Virgo had a myocardial infarction. And they looked at men and women all under the age of 55. From mm -hmm. the Virgo study, what we found is that women were actually more likely than men to seek out an evaluation prior to their hospitalization for their myocardial infarction. But women were more likely to be told this is not likely to be heart-related compared with men. And when their provider thought what their symptoms were due to, it was more likely that women were told they have anxiety and men were more likely to have something else going on that drove them to get care. Specifically, their concern was heart disease, but muscle pain was much more common in men as well and indigestion as well. Now, from Virgo, what we found, though, is that 90% of them actually had chest discomfort, but they were more likely to have additional symptoms, things like nausea or palpitations or discomfort or jaw pain, things like that. And other studies have shown this as well. This is a study that wasn't specifically under the age of 55. This was all comers. This is from the high stakes group in the UK that taught us a lot about the high sensitivity troponins. This was presented in 2019 at ESC and published simultaneously in JAHA. And women, again, 90% of them reported the typical symptoms of angina. Chest pain, arm pain, jaw pain, dullness, heaviness, tightness, pressure, ache, squeezing, crushing, or gripping. And the atypical symptoms were probably more common in the people that didn't go on to have a myocardial infarction, but they were also seen in men. And again, in this study, they found 90% of women and 90% of men had typical symptoms when they were in the myocardial infarction group. The only difference by sex is that women had three or more additional symptoms. Same thing was shown in the Hermes study, which has not been published, but was presented at ESC in 2019. I don't know why it hasn't been published yet. I've been waiting for it for quite some time, but it used cardiolinguistics to listen in when patients described their chest pain. And it basically recorded if the patient actually said chest pain. And they found that again, 90% of women somehow did say chest pain or pressure. The difference again was that women had three or more additional symptoms. So when we say that they had nausea, maybe they also had chest discomfort, but we didn't ask about it once they said their first complaint or we didn't hear it. And, and you might know that I sometimes put out this hashtag, listen to women. And it's because we see too often where women's symptoms are ignored, even for this woman. Her symptom of being short of breath and not being able to do activity seems to me it was ignored because that occurred six months ago, then it occurred four months ago before her presentation. And those are signs that we would expect. So when you see the new chest pain guidelines, you'll see us really emphasize some of these issues. So I look forward to you actually giving me some feedback when you actually get to see what we say about that. Now, the other idea that I think we need to talk about is the fact that obstructive coronary disease is only one phenotype of ischemic heart disease. It's the one we see. 
you know, we're cardiologists, we're just plumbers, see it, we know what to do with it. And seeing that obstruction tells us what's going on, but it's more than that below the surface, right? There's actually the coronary arteries and the arterioles and all the things that we can't necessarily see when we do a cath. But both non-obstructive coronary disease and coronary microvascular dysfunction, that's what's below the surface. And so for even this woman, she had a stress test. It was abnormal. They saw ischemia, right? And they just gave her aspirin. They didn't really talk about, did they believe the PET scan or not? You, you do the PET scan and you see ischemia. If you find an obstructive lesion, you congratulate yourself. You say, that was a good test. What are you doing with the non-obstructive or the microvascular disease patients? Because you didn't treat them exactly the same. And there's a lot to unpack about that. But I think that that is one of the areas that often gets ignored. So again, it's a ischemic heart disease. This woman, as far as I recall, did not get placed on a statin, yet she had ischemia and she had non-obstructive coronary disease. She probably didn't get referred to cardiac rehab. She had symptoms of angina. She had evidence of ischemia, all reasons that you can get patients enrolled into cardiac rehab. And one of the best proven treatments we have for ANOCA, which ANOCA is ischemia with no obstructive coronary arteries, is exercise, particularly cardiac rehab, has been proven to be effective. And so again, these women, uh, they're predominantly women. It can also happen in men, but it is predominantly women. They often get ignored. They're undertreated and they're not told what to do about their condition. They'll continue to have symptoms. They'll continue to be rehospitalized until they have a catastrophe. Now, if they have stable coronary syndrome, so they have angina, but it's reproducible, it goes away with rest, they could have obstructive coronary disease, but they can also have ANOCA, ischemia with no obstructive coronary artery disease, with no obstructive coronary artery story. And if they have an acute coronary syndrome, yes, they can have a STEMI. And they can have unstable angina and non-STEMI. But even with both of these, they can have Minoka. That's a myocardial infarction with no obstructive coronary arteries. But it can present as a STEMI or an unstable angina or a non-STEMI. It's only a diagnosis of exclusion. What we know about these people that have stable ischemic heart disease or acute coronary syndrome from our national registry is that regardless of race, women are less likely to have obstructive coronary arteries. So by this definition in this particular paper was having a 70% or greater lesion, whether that was stable ischemic heart disease or whether it was acute coronary syndrome. But as you would recognize with acute coronary syndrome, even for women, we are more likely to find an obstructive lesion for both men and women. But again, it doesn't matter race. It really is more likely seen in women. But what we also saw in that same study is whether you're talking about stable chest pain or acute coronary syndrome, if they were a woman, they had a poorer outcome compared with men in these two groups. And again, it didn't matter by race and it was statistically significant for all of them. So finding a quote unquote normal coronary arteries or non-obstructive coronaries, that shouldn't give you a lot of comfort. 
We were some of the first to show this. This is a study that I was involved in using a cohort of women called the Women Take Heart Group. Women Take Heart were a bunch of asymptomatic women from the Chicagoland area. When I was a fellow, this was the study I was involved in. And WISE was the women ischemic syndrome evaluation study that maybe you're well versed in. But WISE was people who had symptoms and signs of ischemia and underwent stress testing and CAS. So we knew that they didn't have obstructive disease and the group two had 0% stenosis and the group three were the one to 49% stenosis. And we showed regardless of risk factors that signs and symptoms of ischemia, even without any obstructive disease, without any disease seen, they went on to have cardiovascular events in the next five years. And we were one of the first to show it, but it's been shown now in multiple populations. So, you know, when we have women with ANOCA or men for that matter, it shouldn't just stop. I will tell you that's more of a bucket list diagnosis, ANOCA and MANOCA. You want to tease out what's going on. And that really requires functional testing in the cath lab. So if you're lucky in your cath lab, they'll do a diagnostic cath. If they don't find an obstructive lesion, ideally, their next step would be to do an adenosine and acetylcholine test to tease out, is it microvascular angina? Is it vasospastic angina? Or is it a combination of the two? Because that would help treat the patient. In reality, especially in the U.S., very few people go from their diagnostic angiogram when they find no obstructive disease, it ends. The cath ends and they get discharged and some don't get discharged to a cardiologist because like this woman, they're told your symptoms aren't due to your heart, even with non-obstructive disease, even without any further testing, despite the fact that to me, this woman was very symptomatic. So if you do these things, sometimes you'll have to do them later, or you might use other types of testing to help you that are non-invasive, because of course you're asking the patient to go for yet another invasive test, which depends when you're meeting the patient. Sometimes they're just exhausted of these non-diagnoses they've had that they want to have this test, but sometimes early on, this won't be the way we proceed. Now, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Khan on a review paper that it should be coming out any day now. And we made this beautiful figure. And when I say we, I'm just taking credit, but let's be honest, she did this because she's one of the cardio nerds. And you guys are so, so talented. But we talked about what we needed to be in this figure. So I guess that, that'll be my contribution. But we would try to tease out Anoka, Minoka, what are the risk factors? Because they're not exactly the same, not just the fact that you have a myocardial infarction versus ischemia, but there is differences in who presents with which. So Minoka is often in younger age. There's some risk factors that are common, but some risk factors that are unique. And so I hope you'll all get familiar with this because I do think if you take care of women, you are going to see patients with Anoka and Minoka. But again, it does occur also in men. You can use different testing. So right now, as best we know, the gold standard is coronary reactivity testing with adenosine and acetylcholine, but that's because we haven't actually compared it entirely to doing other non-invasive testing, which needs to be an area that we really look at. 
But, you know, using perhaps types of stress testing. Now, this patient got a stress pet, but we didn't know entirely what we were dealing with. But sometimes pet can actually be a really good test. If you're at a place that has pet, that would be my preference. But certainly in Europe, they use stress echo a lot more. They use that as a diagnostic tool as well. Stress CMR is a great tool. And where I was at, that was what we had had. So that's what we use to detect subendocardial ischemia. But again, if you're lucky to be at a place with PET, I think that that has a lot of great information that you can get. In the cath lab, though, in additional to reactivity testing using IBIS and OCT can tell us a lot as well. And what I want to get across is that the fact that you need to do additional testing is because it's not a diagnosis really to say ANOCA or MINOCA. It's a syndrome and you need additional testing to tell us what's going on so you can target your treatment. It is much more common in women than in men. And again, you need further investigation. I hope I'll convince you of that as well. I've told you it's not a benign prognosis, but it's not also not a one disease process. We certainly need more trials, even about medications. How best to treat this person is not entirely clear, even when you have the testing. But the, the point is that ischemia really is more than obstruction. And when you look for obstruction, that's just the first step. It's much harder when it's not an obstructive lesion. And in addition, we can see patients with obstructive lesions, but it's the microcirculation that's actually the problem and the cause of their symptoms. Even after a stent might be placed, you'll have some patients say, well, my symptoms didn't go away despite the fact you put in the stent. First step is to check that you have a non-optimal medical therapy, but next step might be consideration that there's something going on in the microcirculation. The other thing to remember is that, especially for men, there is a difference in the mechanism that we see that may be sex-based differences of men having an obstructed lesion rather than women having more of a diffuse lesion. I wanted to actually also touch on the HARP study that some of you may have heard about at American College of Cardiology. We've had so many virtual meetings, it's hard to keep them straight, but I think it was ACC of this year. The HARP study was presented and that was specifically looking at Minoka patients and they looked at patients who had no obstructive lesion and they used OCT, optical coherence, and cardiac MRI. And for 85% of the women, they were able to make a diagnosis using those two technologies together. Some who got both, they often came up with the same diagnosis. Not everybody in heart got both, but the intention had been to get both types of studies. So the the recommendation, at least for Minoka, was to at least try to use both of them. But there is a difference in Europe versus North America in terms of what we do with these patients. And I think in the United States, we need to do more investigations to understand these women. Dr. Khan, do you want to add anything? Because I know this is now an area of interest for you specifically, and that's why we had the pleasure of working together. But I know you probably have some comments as well. Thank you, Dr. Galati. I think you did such an excellent job of kind of going through everything and really highlighting that this is an actual clinical syndrome, not a diagnosis. And I think it's really important to drive in the point that once you make the diagnosis that, yes, the syndrome exists, that's not the stopping point. You have to look into the other etiologies that are resulting in the syndrome. And so I know we talked a lot about this, like 
other etiologies and making sure that we're excluding other things like myocarditis and other cardiomyopathies, but also specifically looking at what is the underlying etiology. We talked about the endotype schemes before about like microvascular inflammation or is it epicardio or basoreactivity. I think that's really important to kind of say that Inoco or Minoka, that's not the end point. That's just the beginning. So it's something that we always need to focus on. And I'll tell you, when I was a fellow, it was much more frequently occurring in women. So in the cath lab, when they would not find an obstructive lesion, honestly, these people were told it's not your heart. The way I got interested in this is I kept noticing it was always in women. And they were being told, no, you don't need to follow up with cardiology. It's not your heart. And we'd see them back. And these patients would undergo repeat casts, repeat diagnostic testing, because their symptoms are what are usually driving them. And if you're not treating their symptoms, they're going to come back. And that is really what you will see. And there's a really excellent paper that came out of the WISE study by Dr. Leslie Shaw that if you're more interested in this, you can look up. It's a little old now, but it's so important. They looked at the economic impact of repeat hospitalization for these women. And what they found is that even if you had non-obstructive disease, the cost to the healthcare system was equivalent to somebody with one or two vessel disease. And just from a societal, let alone the individual who's living with the symptoms, and that's enough that it's a problem. But from a societal point, our healthcare system should care about people who have Anoka and Minoka because they are going to reappear in our hospital system. They're going to undergo testing and they often will not get an answer. And so even for this woman, the case that we're dealing with, I don't feel like she was adequately treated. I feel at multiple points, her symptoms were dismissed. And thank goodness she was persistent. I'm sure this is a real case because I didn't ask you to tune this case for for what we were going to talk about. Often these women will seek out care and come to a cardiologist and say, am I going to have a heart attack? Because it certainly to me feels like something that's going on with my heart. And they're convinced that they're the usual driver to getting them to us. When you start talking with them, they've gone, you know, multiple times to the emergency room, multiple tests. So just be aware of it because it it really is something you will see unless you don't see women. And if you don't see women, I'm not sure where you practice. Dr. Khan and Dr. Gladi, that was fantastic. And so there are a few questions in the chat. Austin Culver, back of rounds, raised his hand and had a question. Do we know how to tailor medical management to Minoka, Inoka based on the specific underlying pathophysiology? Yeah. So if you're fortunate enough to do the the steps that we talked about and tease out, is it vasospasm versus coronary microvascular dysfunction? If it is coronary microvascular dysfunction, right now our recommendation is treat it like ischemic heart disease. The guidelines don't specifically say anything different in the U.S. guidelines. If you look at the stable ischemic heart disease guidelines, the overt focus is on obstructive coronary disease. They don't talk about this population at all. They do need to be updated. Wait for some guidelines that are coming soon, and hopefully you'll see something there. Additionally, I think that, you know, right now, we, well, we've had some trials, don't get me wrong. We've got, you know, there's studies that we've looked at 
Renexa doesn't help specifically. It doesn't seem to, although some of us who use Renexa or Renolazine for this population to see if they'd get any response. If not, I'll stop the medication. But otherwise, I treat them like ischemic heart disease. If they are vasospasm, on the other hand, then your medication will be different. You're more likely to turn towards a coronary calcium channel blocker. And and you'll see a lot of people, they'll just, they, they confuse the two. They will think coronary vasospasm and coronary microvascular disease are the same thing. And they think all these patients should be on a calcium channel blocker. And often that's how they'll come to my clinic on a calcium channel blocker. And then it's like that hard thing. Do I wean them off of it, trying to figure out if it's giving them benefit or not. If their symptoms have quieted down, it's hard thing to remove. But if they still are symptomatic, then I, I take the chance because that's where the art of our history taking will help us a little bit. But I think that that is a good question because we need more research specifically in this area of how do we treat them. For Minoka, it's even more complex, right? Like plaque erosion, plaque rupture, in situ thrombosis versus vasospasm versus SCAD. If it's SCAD, that's a completely different group. And I don't want you to start them all on statins unless their cholesterol is elevated. There's no reason, there's no data saying it's beneficial. Vasospasm, treat them like vasospasm. The other components that it could be for Minoka, I would treat it again like they've had a myocardial infarction, so treat them like a myocardial infarction. Treat their risk factors aggressively and follow them. But it is a great question because we need more research about is there specific medication? I think we're at the earliest stages of understanding this group because, like I told you, we've been clumping everything together, Anoka, Minoka. We need to break down those boundaries and see, is there a unique treatment for coronary microvascular dysfunction? Is plaque rupture just like plaque rupture that we talk about with a myocardial infarction? Same with erosion. We need to know so much more. Thanks, Dr. Gladi. Another question that popped up in the chat box is, this patient had lupus. Does this diagnosis specifically raise your suspicion for quickly towards functional testing earlier after non-obstructive left heart cath? Well, certainly having systemic autoimmune diseases does put them at a greater risk of endothelial dysfunction. So without additional testing, my guess, if you made me bet money on it, is that it's probably coronary microvascular dysfunction. But again, this is a group that we see having more inflammation, that's having more problems, more microvascular disease. So we should at least have a heightened awareness for this group. I would say for anyone, not just her specifically, though, that we should do this additional testing to get the answers. But yes, for her as well. Dr. Galati, I want to, on behalf of Natalie and I, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nadja, for being a guest host. This was a fantastic discussion. We really want to thank everyone for joining. If you go to cardionerds.com backslash rounds, the full schedule for the rest of the year is there. Please consider incorporating it into your program. And thank you again, Dr. Galati, and see you all next time.